Mini episode 1492 of the FDH Lounge is brought to you by Sportsology, delivering unconventional columns and webcasts about sports, TV, music, movies, and more. Follow them on the web at sportsology.com. The FDH Lounge. You want to schedule your life around it. A long time ago, on a gloomy, wet Cleveland spring night, two men stand alone amidst the late night drizzle. Their voices echo across the vacant station parking lot as they debate the merits of the great American radio show that have been missing for far too long. On that night, an idea was born. That idea became the FDH Lounge. Welcome to the FDH Lounge. Hello, everyone. Welcome to FDH Lounge mini-episode 1492. This is FDH Managing Partner Rick Morris here with a very beloved FDH Lounge dignitary, a good friend of mine having back on the show here. And uh, he was uh, at the same place uh, recording here previously uh, with me, uh, the old family homestead in uh, Parma, Ohio. We are meeting here to uh, break down the life and times of Calvin Coolidge. Now, I had done a solo segment on this, kind of giving my own thoughts because I was kind of unsure if Tony and I were getting a chance to do this, but uh, mercifully, uh, he has made time for us and uh, very grateful to get a chance to get his perspectives on a president that is of great interest to both of us. So, uh, Tony Mazur, uh, good to have you back in, my friend, and uh, of course, on, on your own podcast, I know this is a topic that you had already covered. Why don't you, why don't you talk about that a little bit? Well, first of all, thank you, Rick. Thanks for having me, and I like being on Episode 1492. I yes. feel very uh, Columbus-esque. Very right historic, Tony. Uh, I haven't murdered any Indians <laughs> since I've been here, but you know. Um, but yeah, Calvin Coolidge, it was interesting because the reason I got into Calvin Coolidge, probably the same way you did, and his name resurfaced in the 1980s mm-hmm. when during Ronald Reagan's, I think his second election and inauguration is that people were kind of looking at the small government conservative, the, uh, you know, not the tax and spend, which... Ironically, I was just looking into this last week. Do you know Reagan actually spent more than Clinton? If you look at it by the actual numbers. I can believe that. And that's one of these things where I will at least say, I mean, he had the excuse of he made the deal with the Democrats. That was how he was able to get the defense spending that I think was decisive in the Cold War. But you raise an interesting point is that I have always felt like a very tragic historical figure for missed opportunities George H.W. Bush, because the Cold War was done. We had a chance to basically reset and basically have it Reagan without all that other crap. He didn't do it. And yeah, like you said, Clinton, ironically, he got reined in a little bit by uh, the Republican Congress. Yeah, and that's really what kind of changed things. And he didn't spend as much money as that uh, what you saw with Ronald Reagan. But during the Reagan years, they kept thinking about Hey, the small government, these, uh, you know, not a lot of government spending. And they started looking at historical figures, and one mm-hmm. of them was Calvin Coolidge. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of a two pronged thing for me because it was not only that, but it was also, he was, you know, you go back in history, and I, I have a uh, admitted, uh, I'm not a big fan of uh, academia, as you hear on my podcast mm-hmm. talk about it. And w- one of the big things that I have a problem with with teaching civics in school and teaching about social studies, is trying to get through world history from essentially Labor Day to Memorial Day. Mm -hmm. You're going to teach a class all of that world, not even U.S. history, world history. Mm -hmm. You're going to start with evolution or whatever you want to believe at the beginning, all the way up to the present day by the time Memorial Day rolls around. Mm -hmm. U.S. history, 
One of my big problems with U.S. history is that you would you learn about the beginnings, as the aforementioned 1492, mm -hmm. and, you know... You know, 1619, <laughs> 1620, all yeah. the way to 1776, 1791, mm -hmm. and then you have, basically, then you have the Civil War, you're right around Christmas, you're learning about the Civil War, then you go on Christmas break, you come back, you start learning about others, like the French and Indian War, and then you get to World War One, where you cover for about two days, mm -hmm. then it's, oh, it, you know, oh, the Great Depression, and then here we are, World War Two, Vietnam, Watergate, and then, oh, end of the school year, here's time for our final exams. Mm -hmm. And one of the problems is you start glossing over these historical figures no, regardless. So it almost seems like we start to focus as kids because there's just so much time in a school year that you focus on the more populist mm -hmm. presidents of yep. the time. Where you, good or bad, you, what are the ones you think about? You think about Washington, Jefferson, mm -hmm. all the way to basically Lincoln. Yep. Then it's Teddy Roosevelt, mm -hmm. FDR, mm -hmm. Kennedy, LBJ, and then the more the modern-day presidents of the last 50 years, Nixon, learning about Watergate, Reagan. Mm -hmm. um, and one thing I was always wondering is, why aren't we learning about some of these other early 20th century presidents? We, know, we knew too much about Teddy Roosevelt, not enough about William McKinley. Right. Not enough about what William Howard Taft did other than getting stuck in a bathtub. Right. We don't, I mean, unfortunately, not enough of us know about Woodrow Wilson and a lot of, in my opinion, the damage he did from military industrial complex to the academia, the kind of more of a you know, plaguing that and talking about uh, um, institutional affairs and everything. Yeah. And you start looking at other Harding and then you get to Calvin Coolidge. And in school, when you were starting to learn about the presidents, Calvin Coolidge was, he was silent Cal. He didn't speak much. Mm -hmm. And then that's it. Then we move on to, and then there was Hoover and the Great Depression, FDR, and World War II. You go, so we, we spent a total of 30 seconds on someone like Calvin Coolidge, not understanding the impact that those six years of him being president yeah. had on the, almost up until the halfway point of the 20th century. And mm -hmm. I've been fascinated by what he... Every, kind of everything that's been around him. And I had the opportunity about a year ago to interview Amity Schles, who is uh, the, I believe she's the chief of the um, Coolidge Foundation up in Vermont. Mm -hmm. And it just getting a little bit more information on somebody that I've been very fascinated about that I didn't really know too much about myself other than some of a lot of the laissez-faire uh, capitalism and economic policy that he had. And again, it's not a sexy topic. Right. I'm sorry. I, I, this is what I always love when you have a mayor mm -hmm. who runs for your local mayor's office, and they have a. Uh, he, he comes in there and says, "I want to fix the sewers." Mm -hmm. And you go, "What about health care? What about uh, racial issues? What about this and that?" But you don't realize you need do need the sewers fixed. Yeah. So they're not sexy issues, right? But they need to be covered, and that's what Calvin Coolidge as. Lieutenant Governor in Massachusetts as Vice President and then as President from 1923 to 1929 was able to kind of just do the grunt work uh, that a lot of people didn't even think two things about. There were just flapper girls just dancing in the streets <laughs> at that point. At least that's how we perceive things about 100 years ago. Yes. And uh, I can tell you that uh, the non-sexy issues, uh, as somebody who is uh, on an HOA board and gets screamed at by all the mutants in my association, uh, I can I can second... <laughs> That notion here that people do not understand functional governance and the things that you need to do uh, to get through that. And that's a thing where 
Your point to me is very interesting because it was similar to one that I did when I recorded my solo podcast on him because you talk about the two Roosevelts there and Wilson in there. That was the beginning of essentially the progressivism that would come to define the 20th, 20th century. And you've got Coolidge as sort of an island within that. Now, Harding as well, but I mean, Harding, I always kind of got the sense was uh, just somebody who, I, I got the sense, just kind of snoozed through his years and everything like that. He wasn't... And then he took the big snooze. Then he took the big snooze, yeah. I mean, you don't you don't think of policy with him the way that you do with Coolidge. I mean, you know, Coolidge, from my research on it, to, to get ready for this, you know, carried on Harding's uh, policies, at least for the period of time. And I was like, well, that couldn't have been too hard, because I don't think Harding necessarily stood for too much. But Coolidge stands as that island in a period of time. And when he was gone, it would never be the same because even Hoover coming after him, Hoover was somebody where, again, once the Great Depression hit, uh, well, starting with the, uh, the the stock market meltdown, he goes into panic mode. Oh, what can I do? Oh, let's put some huge tariffs on everything. Like he was pretty much up for grabs as far as economic policy went. He was kind of blowing in the breeze a little bit. Then Roosevelt comes along. The second one takes it further than we've ever taken it before. And we're off to the races. So, I mean, as far as that moment in time, and for as much as, you know, you know, if you talk about Reagan, Reagan openly identified with Coolidge, and it's a thing where I think that was, I, I think it did Reagan a lot of credit to the degree to which that was true. But this is a thing where, I mean, it was, I was going through my research, it was really kind of saddening because in terms of policy, in terms of the presidency not being a cult of personality, uh, the lack of narcissism that just about every president since has had that kind of narcissism, but not him. I mean, he was the last of a dying breed. On January 20th, 1929, I think it would never be the same, even though people didn't know that at the time. Yeah. And, you know, Rick, Rick and I talk a lot of sports. We were on the phone earlier talking about sports <laughs> and commissioners and everything. Yes. And when you think about baseball uh, umpires and referees in basketball and football, the best ones are the ones you don't hear from, mm -hmm. that they don't cause controversy, yep. that, that there's no C.B. Buckners, there's no Angel Hernandez, there's right. no, none of these Joe West, any of these kind of umpires. Right. The ones that are probably the best ones are the ones you don't hear anything about. And that's probably a good thing when we talk about Calvin Coolidge is that, again, all we hear about is Silent Cal. Yeah, mm -hmm. he, was, uh, he was the president during the 20s. Okay. And, the, and everybody moves on to the more populist uh, type of presidents, whether it's actual populism or phony populism. Mm -hmm. And that's what he did is he was a policy guy. Mm -hmm. He's not a guy that is somebody that we're going to look back in terms of like talking about his personality, because we don't really know much about his personality. And right. the other thing is he's the 30th president of the United States. Mm -hmm. Not that long ago. Yeah. I ideally, not that long ago. I mean, we're talking about just about 100 years ago. Mm -hmm. We're not talking about Martin Van Buren. We're not right. talking about James Monroe. Right. We're talking about somebody 100 years ago that just did his job and knew his clothes. Mm -hmm. He knew his clothes. He knew because by the end, when, when Hoover was really a disaster of a president, mm -hmm. that there were calls before FDR started running that they said, we kind of like that Coolidge guy. Yeah. And he's like, I did it. I'm done. Yeah. Now, you don't need to hear from me. Plus, he was dealing with his own health issues, and he retired and you know, just a few years after his presidency is when he ended up uh, sadly passing away. Mm -hmm. But he felt he did all he could do. Yeah. And one of his famous, I think one of his last quotes was that uh, the world has basically passed him by. He mm -hmm. said, the world's passed me by and I, I don't have, I don't, I'm paraphrasing, but I don't fit in this current world right now. Yeah. And it's true. 
Because what have we seen since then? No matter Republican, Democrat, it's all been about who has the broad shoulders, who has mm -hmm. the smile, yep. who has the, the gravitas. Mm -hmm. And all the way up to the present day, where you have, of course, there's Donald Trump that, yeah, grates on a lot of people. But one of the reasons he won was because conservatives, in my opinion, mm -hmm. went down the National Review, Bill Buckley, stuffy shirt, a glass of bourbon and a cigar type of conservatism that was, it seemed like for your grandparents. Mm -hmm. It was, well, you know, we have decorum, we have this, that. And then Trump just comes out and takes a figurative dump on all of that. Mm -hmm. And for me personally, it was refreshing because I was a little bit tired of the the namby-pamby Mitt Romney type of conservatives, uh, the, the John McCain's where they try to reach across the aisle. And all they do is they just get, you know, they get told they're Nazis, they're racist, they're sexist, they're this and that, until, of course, you know, they can be used in different you know, elections and used as kind of a club. And so when you start to see some of those, things have changed. You have to adapt to the times. So would a Calvin Coolidge type, if he were running in 2024, would he even have a chance? Absolutely not. Right. Maybe at the local level, maybe at the state level, which mm -hmm. I, in my opinion, more important when you look at federalism and the recent uh, goings on with the uh, Roe versus Wade, the Dobbs case and Obergefell and everything. But um, a Calvin Coolidge would probably make a, a solid governor nowadays. But my God, he can't, he won't even come close to being president because we are so hyper-focused on who's going to be the personality who becomes president. And no matter left or right, that's what's going to happen. And, and this world really does need a Calvin Coolidge president, but they don't want a president right. like that, unfortunately. Well, that's true, yeah. And, uh, you know, much to his credit, I mean, even if the saying had been around back in the day, you would have never seen uh, Calvin Coolidge with a uh, liberal tears coffee mug. <laughs> I mean, that was not the kind of guy he was. He was or a serious your guy. your feelings t-shirt. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It wouldn't have been him uh, doing that either. And uh, again, just to mention, as I, I think I forgot to at the outset, so we are here just past the 150th birthday of Calvin Coolidge, July 4th. 1872 is when he came into the world. So that's our timing on doing this here. And I want to hearken back, since you mentioned Trump, uh, to your very great podcast. And I was very interested checking that one out, the Check Your Brain podcast with Tony Mazur. And uh, on that time when you had had Amity Schles on to talk about this, it was very interesting because that was a thing where when you mentioned Trump, uh, there was some pushback mm -hmm. from her, her being a good uh, George W. Book, uh, Bush apparatchik. Neocon, yeah. Yes, neocon and everything like that. And that's a thing where, I mean, if you want to go down the line and you want to point out all the dissimilarities uh, between Coolidge and, and Trump, you could spend a couple hours on that. But much as she might not believe, you could easily do the same thing on George W. Bush. Both of them make LBJ look like pikers in terms of federal spending. So, I mean, this whole thing of like purer than now about George W. Bush versus Trump uh, is just idiocy in my book. That's where, when you start to look at how things have changed, and I think we could probably even get into it here in this podcast. Mm -hmm. Why did that change? When did it change? Can we pinpoint a time? Because, when again, when you look at it, William McKinley was a very good president, mm -hmm. if you really look back in, in there. But, again, we don't know anything about him. Right. We just knew about Denali, Mount, De, Mount McKinley. Yeah. And... Um, and from Ohio, just down the road here in Canton, Ohio. And Mark Hanna pulled the strings. You know, you hear more about the boss almost mm -hmm. than the president. And that's the one problem is 
we can't pinpoint because again you mentioned about Harding. Harding was kind of a you know a, I don't want to say a do nothing president, but just kind of was there. Coolidge was a policy guy. Uh, Hoover was not a very good president, but then it just decided to change. Was that because of the new influx of mediums such as radio and then eventually television? Was uh, more publications that were out? Um, you know, we're, we're starting to see silent films. You get the talkies during the period when Coolidge was president. Mm -hmm. And then you have that more influx, kind of what we have today, where we have social media and that stories are not necessarily broken in your local newspaper anymore. They're broken on Twitter. Mm -hmm. They're broken on, heck, even TikTok or Snapchat or something. And it, that's how things have really exploded and fragmented where we're going with this national conversation. But it almost seemed to me that it coincided with Calvin Coolidge leaving office mm -hmm. is where these mediums started, where radio became the thing in the late 20s and into the 30s. In fact, Calvin Coolidge, uh, I believe, was the first president to have his voice broadcast on the radio. He was. And ever since then, you'd have FDR and his fireside chats. Mm -hmm. uh, Truman was around, and you know, Eisenhower had his speeches for, from being a military guy, NATO. And then, of course, you had the Kennedy and Nixon debate of 1960, where mm -hmm. if you were listening on the radio, many said Nixon won. But if you watched on TV, Nixon's sweating and uncomfortable, and Kennedy is a Kennedy. And many say that because that helped swing the election. So the media and the medium have changed since Calvin Coolidge, and that's why ever since him, we're getting these populist or trying-to-be-populist presidents or at least presidential candidates, and it's uh, is that for the better, or are we just adapting to the times? I mean, again, I think conservatives had to adapt to the times in the uh, you know after getting their butts whooped in 2008 and 2012 mm -hmm. that they had to have somebody that says, okay, well, you you are calling Mitt Romney a racist. Well, we'll show you somebody who has some <laughs> problems with with a, a filthy mouth right now. Yeah. So. I mean, it, that's where we're at. But again, it just kind of the theme of this podcast and anytime you talk about Calvin Coolidge is the world does need a Calvin Coolidge, but the world does not want a Calvin Coolidge. That's true. That's true. And uh, by the way, as, as far as uh, it goes with racial sensitivity and comedians and everything like that, uh, I, I always say uh, whenever anybody uh, goes, gets ready to throw you under the bus for that, Tony, I always say, you watch your mouth about my friend. He is, after all, a guy who insisted on getting married on Juneteenth. That's right. And nobody can ever deny that from exactly. him. Exactly. So. I have a joke about it on stage. Yes. I, I, won't, I won't say it on this podcast. But, uh, yeah, we, um, it, it's, it's fascinating when you start looking at his life, and I, I'm sure you talked about it in the solo podcast a little bit about Calvin Coolidge, and just... Humble beginnings, a mm -hmm. humble New Englander. Yeah. And somebody that you think about where, you, you know, 150 years, you talk about post-Civil War North. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, this is now, he's born in the time where we're having the Industrial Revolution. Yep. And you're kind of seeing somebody who is seeing it from the ground up, from basically from birth all the way up until he takes some type of public office. Yep. And, you know, you, I, I, I'm going to, again apply this to today mm -hmm. is that there are kids who are in high school and going on to college who have never known life without an iPhone, yeah. without YouTube, without Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. So somebody like Calvin Coolidge, who was born at the, you know, at the very beginning, at the onset of the industrial revolution. So mm -hmm. he gets an opportunity to see that from his perspective as he's growing up, that yeah. somebody who is a little bit older 
did not get to see. This is a new phenomenon coming from, you know, a, a little bit more of an agricultural background. And now you're seeing these these cities kind of transform with steel mills and railroads and, and all these new types of technology that you're seeing in the latter por portion of the 19th century. Yes, that is true. Uh, as all of that was picking up, and uh, again, in, in looking at this, and to go back to a point that you had made just a bit ago here, uh, our, our good friend uh, and fellow FDH Lounge dignitary Jake Digman will be proud of me for wedging in a quasi-CM Punk reference, but <laughs> in, in the song Cult the Personality, it is no accident whatsoever that they have the quote in there, the only thing we have to fear, because that's the beginning of daddy government right mm -hmm. there. That was the beginning of it, and, and basically taking the medium and crafting it to this Again, cult of personality, not to be too reductive, but that's exactly what it was. They were spot on with this thing. Kennedy took it a step further with the advent of modern public relations and uh, applying that to it and, and having these type of figures in there uh, that we can be messianic about. Uh, that was what uh, Americans were conditioned to do over a period of time. You are right that Coolidge was the first president on radio. And I was surprised in the course of my research to find out that he was actually one of the most accessible presidents to the media in his time. But it wasn't a thing of like elbowing aside stuff to get in front of a microphone or wasn't really cameras then, although I think he might have been on some talkies a little bit. But you know what I mean. There's an attention-seeking way of doing it, and then there's a way of like, okay, come on in my office and I'll answer your questions. And that's what he was. He was a matter-of-fact guy making himself accessible <laughs> as opposed to the cult of personality guy making it about himself. And yeah, I mean, I think this theme that we are developing here uh, is one that uh, has a lot of validity to it because, uh, you know, you did have Hoover, who was sort of a bridge between him and uh, FDR. But man, once FDR got in there, there was no looking back. And I do not say that in a, in a wistful way. It's about policy. Mm -hmm. And it's so heavy on policy. And again, I'm going to apply it to today is that as we record this in July of 2022, Gas prices are still about five bucks a gallon. Mm -hmm. uh, inflation is out of control. Uh, the cost of a remember last year where they said the cost of a uh, a the July Fourth barbecue is down sixteen cents from the previous year. It's like yeah, because the previous year there was a little thing called a pandemic happening, yes. and you told us we couldn't, we weren't allowed to do anything. Mm -hmm. So of course, and there was also a meat shortage that was happening, and a lot of Tyson, a lot of these plants had COVID outbreaks and everything. So you are now dealing, so then they said it's down 16 cents. Wow. Well, guess what? It was up $12 yeah. this time around. And Joe Biden nowadays, President 46, is going out and saying, it's about Russia. It's all it's Putin's price hike. It's Putin. It's all about Putin. And it's, uh, and then uh, Jerome Powell came out and said it's because people didn't get vaccinated when they told them to. And you realize you're not taking any responsibility, and it's all about policy. So if you go back 100 years, and you see where this country was pre-World War One, and then leading up to World War II, it's two different Americas, if yes. you think about it. That you one can make a case that Wilson should not have gotten us into World War One. Oh, very good case. Now, granted, if, you're, if we're not in World War One, of course, we're not in World War Two. Mm -hmm. probably not. And we're not the world superpower that we are today. We're mm -hmm. not the world police. But there's a great case that we should have stayed away in World War One. But you had no choice. Wilson got us in there. Many men died. It's the Forgotten War. Mm -hmm. For whatever reason, I don't know if you can answer that, why we just... World War One is just... The Great War was just 
forgotten about. I mean, it's, again, taught in schools for about three minutes, if that, and you move on to the Great Depression. And again, we gloss over this period where good policy pulled us out of these situations that were put in by someone like Wilson mm-hmm. and, and Harding. And people kind of forget about this. And I actually forgot about it, too, until I did a little bit of research. Before the Great Depression, in the early ni- 1920s, there was another depression, mm-hmm. not a recession, a depression, a post-war hangover yeah. that was going on. Well, how do we get out of it and how do we completely forget about that? It's because good policy pulled the United States out of it, made us a much more prosperous country, and that was Calvin Coolidge. Yeah. It was Calvin Coolidge who said he was going to be a small government Republican, didn't spend a lot of money, or and pulled us out. And he did it. He actually did. He didn't say he was going to do it like every other drunken sailor Republican that has come in the last, oh, full century. Yeah. Uh, Calvin Coolidge did it. And that it's all about policy. And that's why the 1920s, when we think about well, Great Gatsby, you think about anything, flapper girls, women's suffrage, they never give Coolidge the credit for why we got into a, a great situation as a country. If anything, they start to slowly give him blame for the Federal Reserve and why the Great Depression ended up happening uh, starting into the 1930s. So it's, uh, it, it's a shame that he really does not get the credit that he deserves. That is true. And I will say, uh, and, and again, and this might sound humorous on the one sense, but I actually mean this you know, largely uh, in a straight up kind of a way. Having recently watched Boardwalk Empire, I did find it to be a little bit educational in what you're talking about with World War I, because the vets coming back, that was one of the subplots there, was the vets coming back. I mean, and if 100 years later, if society is still largely illiterate about PTSD and everything that veterans, uh, who to, to me are just pretty much the greatest heroes we have, if we 100 years later don't understand what they're dealing with, imagine what it was then. Yeah. Imagine what it was like for all of those poor souls coming home after the horrors that they had seen. I'm not and, sure if you yeah. saw it. I forgot the name of the documentary, but Peter Jackson uh, did it. It was a couple of years ago and colorized, like absolutely put color to old World War One films. Now, oh, wow. they're not Americans. They're they're British. Okay. They're, but you actually see, because we look at war back in the day, and you don't mm-hmm. put the humanity behind them because right. those people are dead. They're long dead. Right. And he obtained a lot of audio and video recordings from a lot of these veterans back in the 1960s who served in World War One, who were elderly at that point. And you hear the thick brogues and uh, the accents. and But you actually see, that's a 19-year-old. Yeah. We, don't, we think of 19-year-old as somebody who's playing video games and is on Twitch streaming right now. Right. A 19-year-old who was probably lied about his age and mm-hmm. going into the military and has been in there for a couple of years and serving during the entire war. And you actually see the... The, the man, mm-hmm. it, it's a young man who is fighting for his country. And it, it was very fascinating that you actually see that uh, in well, well done colorization. Because, you know, when I remember growing up and seeing the colorized Three Stooges films, <laughs> and they're like, oh, yeah, that's like that washed out yeah. uh, Technicolor or whatever it was that uh, Ted Turner was trying TCM. to colorize everything. <laughs> yeah. But uh, that's what's fascinating is getting out of World War One in that time between World War One and World War Two, and why we were provoked to go into World War Two. 
but we kind of, you know, you talk about buying war bonds and getting us out and getting the economy going and FDR with his new deal. And, uh, oh, by the way, FDR also wanted to pack the court yes. because he wasn't getting a lot of what he wanted out of his new deal. Yeah. Every, and, everything uh, old is new again. Certainly. Absolutely. They're just like, just like uh, overalls. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, getting back to Coolidge. What was fascinating about it was when you talked about daddy government mm -hmm. and one of the big, I don't want to say it's a blemish, but just like every president has had some type of natural disaster that they've had to tend to. Mm -hmm. Well, when you see what's going on nowadays with this Dobbs case of Roe versus Wade, Roe versus Wade, it, yes, it was almost 50 years, uh, a more conservative <laughs> Supreme Court, 6-3. Well, it, what they did is they didn't ban it. It's not banned. You, you're not banned from getting an abortion right now. Yep. It's brought back to the state. So if you're mm -hmm. in California, if you're in New York, if you're in Illinois or Connecticut, you could still get an abortion if you want to. Mm -hmm. But there might be states like Alabama and Mississippi that say, and maybe not. Right. Texas, heartbeat bill, and some states are going to probably curtail a lot of abortion. So what it does is that's what's called federalism, and it brings mm -hmm. it back to the states. Calvin Coolidge had a situation during his administration where the Mississippi River flooded, left over 600,000 people homeless. Mm -hmm. So what do you do in a situation? Well, nowadays it's, let's get FEMA. Let's get the federal government to house these people. And of course, what we saw during with George Bush and Katrina mm -hmm. is that, yeah, there was a lot of problems with the response from the federal government because that's what the federal government does. They're not really very good at a lot of these things. So what happened is Calvin Coolidge said, I would leave it to the states. He actually sent, of all people, Herbert Hoover mm -hmm. out to go survey what was going on. And he was uh, he left it to the states. And he was getting criticism at that time by saying, you know, why can't the federal government do something about it? Why are you leaving it up to the states? And uh, sure enough, in his home state, because they attacked him, they said, well, you're only doing this because you're a New Englander and you probably don't care about that part of the country. Well, sure enough, his area where he was from also had a massive flood. And what did he do? The same thing he did with the Mississippi flooding. Nothing. But not necessarily nothing. Leave it to the states to deal with it. Right. And they recovered a lot faster. Uh, and I think history would prove itself that if the federal government got involved in that, you're not going to see some kind of, uh, you know... I don't want to say reparations, but anything where you are getting that federal money to get your home repaired or rehomed or whatever the case is. And Coolidge did a great job when looking at that and something that today's presidents should also be doing. So applying it once again to today for 100 years is that we have a Supreme Court that is allowing these decisions to head back to the states. And in, I, I think it's a great thing. Uh, because not every state, not every state's values are the same. California is much different from Montana. So even though we are the United States, we also have different values and different cultures. We essentially we're not necessarily fifty states. We should be kind of operating as fifty countries, kind of like the Europe Europe before the European Union. Right. So I think some states can do certain things based on their values and what their voters want. And if you're a state that decides that uh, you know your values are like this and the federal government tried to force their values on you well now it's your opportunity to take it to the polls in November so you know, what's what's the better society what would you prefer and who knows maybe this uh, Supreme Court originalism that's going on is going to be a is going to hopefully set off for me personally and my, my values as being somebody who's more paleoconservative 
that if we have more originalism in a Supreme Court, that it goes back to the states and we exercise and flex our muscles with using federalism and states' rights, that we go back to the days of Calvin Coolidge and that spirit that we had as individual states as opposed to always looking up to daddy federal government. I agree. And uh, as the other paleocon residing in the state of Ohio, uh, I I find (laughs) a lot to agree with there. And and again, as far as originalism goes, federalism, I'm big fans of those things. Ironically, uh, in a world where Coolidge would not recognize anything else, the one thing he would would recognize would be the direction of the courts, because uh, that is basically of the time uh, really prior to FDR and that, that whole kind of uh, revolution that we went through, the unelected revolution, because, uh, again, and this is one of the things I referenced uh, in my uh, commentary about uh, Coolidge, was uh, the, the complete bastardization of the Interstate Commerce Clause, which, uh, from FDR on, it's been, oh, the federal government can do whatever because of the ICC, and prior to that, there was restraint. And that's the whole thing. When we talk about this here, this, this all comes back to a, a theme of restraint and humility and everything like that. For the big daddy government types, Government should be doing all of these kind of things, womb to tomb, et cetera, et cetera. He was a guy where, again, his uh, foreign policy was a very modest one. Uh, he did not pursue a hegemony across the world. He tried to make peace with some of the countries in Latin America that were uh, aggrieved. Uh, in terms of Germany, uh, he was, I never knew this until a couple of days ago, he was lighter on them in terms of reparations. Uh, he passed, uh, I believe it was the, uh, well, he, he signed into law the, uh, the Dawes Act, I believe, and uh, that was the one that uh, ended our Dawes plan. That ended up uh, taking it a little bit easier on Germany. Unfortunately, not easy enough to keep Hitler from coming to power, but you do what you can do. And uh, cooperation with Canada, the St. Lawrence Seaway, which has done so much for the economy of both countries here. So it's a thing where finding the ways to do it that don't interfere with, again, originalism or anything like that, staying in your lane, being you know, humble, not acting like you have all the powers in the world. This is an argument that I got into with somebody years ago about, uh, I think it was Pope Benedict. There was this woman that was giving me grief about that. And uh, why doesn't he just do this? Why doesn't he change the policies on gays and women priests, whatever? I was like, you don't get it. He doesn't think he can. Even if he was sympathetic, he doesn't think he can. There's a college of cardinals. It's checks and balances. Yeah, and it's like, and and you have these canons over time, and anything you do has got to be consistent with it. So that's the whole thing. You look at the legacy of FDR and everything else, of like basically the Constitution being an etch-a-sketch here, and it basically says what you want it to say. And I, I remember just finding it so hilarious when Obama became president of like liberal Constitution professor. I'm like, what the hell is that? I mean, that must be the easiest job in the world. You just say the Constitution says whatever I want to be in it, and you boom, you can be a liberal Constitution professor. I mean, everything has basically gotten warped in the days after Coolidge as far as any kind of understanding and restraint. And there would be a lot of people listening to this. I know even good friends of mine that would think that, oh, this is the, these are, they're abstract. These two white guys talking about these abstracts of federalism Cisgender. And stuff. Cisgender, whatever. <laughs> but the thing of it is, Tony, is, and this is another point that people don't get that I try to explain to them. This is the kind of stuff, being rooted to something concrete is what separates us from being a banana republic. And to the extent that we've become a banana republic in the last hundred years or so, and we're well down that road, I'm afraid, it's because we don't have any fealty to the Constitution and to the things that bind us. If you don't feel there are any restraints on what you can do, people forget power can be used for ill as well as for good. 
what a lot of people do nowadays is they start to look at yesterday through the prism of today. Yep. And instead of looking at, okay, yeah, Thomas Jefferson owned slaves, but you want to look at what else he did? No, it doesn't matter. Everything that he does offsets because he was a racist who owned slaves. Right. You no, know, I can't argue with you then because you do, or you are not, first of all, you're not coming with an actual argument mm -hmm. about what Thomas Jefferson was about. Nobody knew anything about Alexander Hamilton until six years ago when a musical came out about it. Right. We have a real problem with lack of, as I mentioned early on, of not learning enough about... It's like we, we found a couple of buzzwords to take from it. George Washington, first president, he had wooden teeth, tried chopping down an apple tree. Yep. Or cherry tree. And John Adams, second president of the United States. Thomas Jefferson, he owned slaves and Declaration of Independence and blah, blah, blah. And then it's like... You get to Madison, Monroe, uh, Andrew Jackson is a racist. Uh, and then you start to look at everything through that prism. Mm -hmm. People were just attached to it because they were raised during an era where there was slavery. Yep. Uh, that women didn't have the right to vote. That if you were gay or even, God forbid, transgender at that time. Because, by the way, not, this isn't a new phenomenon. This has been going on sure. for many, probably millennia. Yes. It's been happening. but. Uh, there were things going on that, because we're not looking at things through today's prism, mm -hmm. everything has to be completely offset, and we need to start remaking the country in today's image. Mm -hmm. And and what, what you're doing is you're tearing down, this is where I had the problem with the literal tearing down of the statues a few years ago. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not going full Charlottesville when I say this, but to preserve history, and also being very anti-communist, yeah. uh, that what happened in the communist countries is that they literally and figuratively tore down the statues of what made a, a country like Russia great back in the day and put it in their own image of today. And that's what I fear was going on. So we tear down George Washington. We tear down uh, Thomas Jefferson. We say, oh, because then the slippery slope happens where you say, well, oh, Robert E. Lee. And this was my argument when I worked in radio, was I would argue with some of the listeners and some people who worked there by saying, you know, you start tearing down Robert E. Lee, there's going to be a slippery slope because, again, through today's prism, we're going to say, oh, that's racist. And so you tear down Robert E. Lee. Okay, well, you know, ahead of uh, the, okay, uh, all right, fine, let's tear it down. Jefferson Davis, you go, okay, I can understand that, head of the Confederacy, everything. What about Lincoln? Well, Lincoln freed the slaves, Emancipation Proclamation. Well, yeah, but Lincoln also had some bad history and this and that. So we tear down Lincoln, then we tear down T Jefferson, we tear down Washington, to the point where we're tearing down Kate Smith, who once sang, yeah. you know, because she did a, 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 a song that's racially insensitive by today's standards. We're uh, vandalizing a Stevie Ray Vaughan statue in Austin because people don't, people looked at him and they said, oh, he's a white man appropriating the clothes of, uh, of Mexican or Hispanic yeah. people, uh, and we don't know our history. This is the problem is we don't we really don't know our history. And in my opinion, you mentioned Barack Obama. Mm -hmm. uh, this is not I, I've had this feeling for a long time. I felt the 2012 election changed this country for the worse because we started looking things at things through the prism of this is racist. This is sexist. This is homophobic. This is it. It was intersectionality is what was really plaguing, because instead of. Focusing on, and I'm not going to say MAGA, but mm -hmm. instead of focusing on our strengths, we wanted to tear ourselves down and implode it from the inside by mm -hmm. saying, America, there's systemic this and systematic that, and 
uh, patriarchy and hierarchy and this and this and this and this. And when you start getting into that point, you start to look at the values of what made this country and what made Western civilization great. And that's when you start to look at things through a larger perspective of a lot of empires collapsed after about 250 years. Well, we're at about 246 right now. Yeah. We're getting there to the point where we are eating each other, and it's not... Uh, how did the Ottoman Empire end up fizzling out? How did the Roman Empire... Yeah, implosion. How, it was implosion. It wasn't from outside forces that knocked them down. It was what happened on the inside that just teared at the country. So this is where you get into the topic of national divorce. Mm -hmm. Do we... Because if California is going to have abortion on demand... And Mississippi thinks that, you know, it, the voters believe that you know, life begins at conception. You can, almost can't live in the same country if you believe in one and another part of the country doesn't believe in that. Right. So getting back again, long way of saying this, of getting back to Coolidge, where we did have a world war that we're recovering from. Mm -hmm. And to try to put us back on the map before, of course, the, you know, eventual, you know what, hit the fan come the 1930s. It, uh, we were fractured as a country, but somehow we found some kind of centralizing figure that wasn't a populist mm -hmm. to get us there. Well, all of a sudden we have now is everybody wants to, whether it is Trump being braggadocious or Obama saying that, uh, I killed Osama bin Laden. I was there. I had, I had the pistol in my <laughs> hand. And Joe Biden, who's taking credit for everything, even though, you know, things haven't really gone too well, uh, especially lately. And he's upset that he's not getting enough credit. <laughs> we have populism that's going on right now that is, it, it, it's this, what, and a lot of it is phony populism, as I right. said earlier. Most of it. That is really plaguing our public discourse right now and our body politic. And that's why, as I said twice before, I'll say it again, I'll say it probably until I'm blue in the face, is that we do need a Calvin Coolidge. Mm -hmm. We're not going to get a Calvin Coolidge because we're so... <clears throat> I mean, you, you talk about globalism and everything. I know I'm just ranting right now, but it gets to that point where you need somebody who's going to bring us together and do those non-sexy non things to get us back on track. But I, I don't know who the next person is going to be that's going to help us get back on track and who that next Calvin Coolidge is. Well, yeah, and that's the whole thing, is that Calvin Coolidge, again... He was essentially, I think, a timeless man in a timeless age. We had started to see the country with, uh, you know, Teddy Roosevelt, Woodrow Wilson starting to go down the progressive path. But basically, uh, it was a, a, a time and a place where things really didn't change uh, that much, particularly like they are today. And, and, and again, in, in some ways, uh, yeah, I mean, some of the people who are so self-satisfied looking back uh, do make a good point on things about race. I mean, that was sort of like a, a weird national psychosis of like where we all convinced ourselves that these other people were like subhuman, which is why, by the way, I give so much more credit to the abolitionists. I mean, yeah. imagine what it was like to stick your neck out and say, hey, people are people, man. I mean, that was, you talk about a, a thing out of time in its place, but we've so course corrected on that. You're absolutely right, because you talk about the 2012 election, you know, some of us might have different benchmarks in time or whatever, but that's not a bad one to cite as far as that goes. Because I remember this was like 2010, 2011, when there was a sitcom that I really enjoyed called Outsourced. It was on NBC, and it was a really good one. It was about a call center gets sent over to India, and the American guy that ran the call center was the butt of the jokes. It was not mean-spirited at all. I mean... Yeah, there were some buffoons that were in the call center, but it's no different than if it was buffoons in an American call center. But, oh, because it's an Indian thing. So 
the, the show got canceled after a year, and within a few years, it was like, oh boy, they couldn't make that show today. Yep. It was a sea change. It was very, very quick. And I go to another thing here as I uh, bring up uh, a, a bad memory of, this was in 2018, so me being relatively new on my HOA board. Uh, we had a little bit of a controversy with a neighboring association, and they took down a plaque in a common area for our founder. A long story, but uh, they were not really within their rights to do that. It was in a common area, but they they overstepped their bounds. But my good friend, who was the president, invited me as a fellow officer to a summit meeting uh, and to be her bad cop, as I generally was. And I remember saying to the guy, this is in America. He's not Saddam Hussein. We don't do that here. And it was like, that was 2018. Yeah. And it was like, within two years, whew, boy, they were falling like dominoes, Tony. Yeah. 